this was a horrible mistake. We were just kidding. We love commuting to the office. Welcome to an all new episode of the McFuture podcast, challenging the beliefs that run the world. Today, we're talking about working from home. I don't really want to talk about a lot of the traditional pros and cons that everyone's covered about working from home, because in reality, everyone is right. There's no one who's wrong, right? If you are for working at home or against it, whatever works for you. So I have no opinion on what's right for you. However, I do have a point of view on how this might play out. And I think that's the more interesting piece here. So everyone's like, oh, future of work. And I I once joked uh, that uh, what if the future of work is talking about the future of work? (laughs) This is it. (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm living the dream. Um, I've been looking at the data. So this uh, data just came out and they showed how all of the different metro areas are performing uh, relative to the way they were before the pandemic. And it looks like offices were at 100% capacity across the board before the pandemic in 2019. So now they've been kind of going up slowly and looking at each of the metro areas, New York metro area is still only at 40%. Chicago, 409 Austin, 57.4, which is also a much younger population. Uh, Washington, D.C., 39.25. Apparently, our government workers don't uh, don't love to work. Who, who could have guessed? And San Francisco metro area, 37.5, which is not surprising either because they're shut-ins, let's face it. Uh, and if you're doing a bunch of coding, it really doesn't matter where you're doing it. Um, And the only thing that's worked so far in New York to get people back to the office is air conditioning. Seriously, that's it. There's a Wall Street Journal article talking about how they've tried everything. Employers have tried, you know, all kinds of bells and whistles. But the only thing to get them into the office successfully has been like outrageous heat. So in effect, we need more global warming. And I hope there's, this is in the latest um, Biden budget. I hope they've allowed for some financing for heating up the planet a little bit, because if we're successful in doing that, we could have so many more productive workers. And isn't that the most important thing we could do? Think about it. On the surface, it looks like Companies are the big winners, right, with with uh, work from home. Because now, no more office space, none of the amenities, no more free lunches. You don't have to put sushi into the vending machines, which I'm pretty sure they did. I mean, you know, like in some of the nicer companies, you know, just a piece of fish coming out of the slot. Um but, uh, and also they're saving on all these other expenses, you know, the, the commuter, uh, reimbursements and they were providing, I don't know, who knows all these other perks, all of them gone. And they're also getting all this extra work time. Cause now, you know, these workers get up in the morning, they can start working right away. They don't have to drive for an hour and then, you know, come up for, with excuses of why they're late again. Um, but it's not exactly working out uh, cleanly in their favor. Uh, there's um, a report also in the Wall Street Journal talking about this 
uh, concept of quiet quitting, which basically means doing a shitty job. So a lot of people apparently, especially like younger millennials and Gen Z, uh, don't like their jobs. Shockingly enough, apparently being a barista or, you know, pounding on some keyboard all day isn't fulfilling. So what they've been doing is basically kind of like a, a silent protest. So they're working, but not really. They're doing just enough not to get fired, which really is the definition of a lot of workers I've seen throughout history. I don't know why it needed a name, but it's got a name now. It's called quiet quitting. But now engagement score of Gen Z and young millennials is the lowest it's ever been. It's at 31%. Uh, it, it was as high as like, I don't know, uh, 50% at some point. But um, also they're commiserating on social media. So they're all getting together and just <laughs> creating a snowball of misery saying, oh, <laughs> you hate your job too. I hate mine too. And this is how organizations start. This is how protests start. This is how Bernie Sanders started at the ripe old age of 70. And uh, I tweeted in July of 2021, wait, you thought only we got to work from home? Uh, one of the many reasons companies love work from home is it doesn't just give you the employee flexibility gives the company flexibility to hire any worker from anywhere, including outside of the country. But it doesn't have to be. It could be someone who's living in another area who probably wouldn't have competed for the job if they had to come into the office. But once they don't have to, you know, everything's fair game. And especially if they're willing to work at a lower wage. And this is really important. Um, for the first time in history, the entire planet, every single company on earth for two and a half years ran an involuntary global pilot, basically testing the productivity of workers from home. The technology has never existed before. The imperative has never existed before. And so everyone knows exactly what that means to their company. And companies have this data. Uh, we individually might have a clue if we're more productive or not, but they have aggregate data, just like they have aggregate salary data. So this is an unprecedented period of time. And I, you know, I, I had a couple of tweets that were pretty popular. And so some people were responding and one guy, this guy, Eric wrote, Sure, but that works both ways. Working from home opens up a much wider range of job opportunities for me. Eric Yes and no. Locations with the highest salaries have the most to lose. So in aggregate, if you look at the United States, we have the highest wages per employee. And just like we had the highest um, manufacturing uh, at some point in the 80s and 90s, uh, if you're at the top and you're making the most, you're, you've got the most market share, you could only go down especially if you're the highest cost provider. So there's this huge arbitrage and whether it's domestic or international, if you have a bunch of workers that weren't previously able to participate and are now willing to participate at lower prices because they live in cheaper areas or, or are far away and would never have been able to qualify for these jobs, the U.S. worker in that scenario becomes a net loser. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be individuals who uh, thrive in this situation, but in on average, in aggregate, you're going to have the high cost providers, the, the high salary worker lose in that scenario. 
And uh, the United States in 2020, the average salary was $69,392. Iceland was next at 67,488. Then Luxembourg, 65,000. Switzerland, Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Canada was 55,342. So these will likely be the net losers. Especially, you know, now let's say there's a Canadian worker who's super qualified and according to this, you know, on average may be willing to work at 20% less. Another guy wrote uh, to me, if one's contribution can be perfectly replicated by someone in Malaysia, why wouldn't the company have already done this? The company didn't offshore when it cost them even more because of real estate and related costs. Okay. Okay. This is confusing the way he wrote it. But- There's a misconception out there. People think that the cheapest labor always wins. That's not the case. It's the highest value for the dollar that wins or whatever your currency is. I'll give you an example. There could be a lot of superb American workers, but let's say you could find someone, you know, let's say customer service to do an 80% as good a job as an American worker, but they're willing to do it for 60% of the cost, that might be good enough for a lot of companies. And a lot of companies have already made that trade. And now they will be enabled to do that for more job functions because now we've opened up this possibility because more job roles just can be done remotely. And so um, there will be people who have differential skills and can still thrive in that environment and could be a good number of people. But that's not the majority And it won't work for a sustained period of time. It'll work for a while. We shouldn't discount how quickly others can catch up. And the analogy I'll give is, um, think about YouTube, right? Uh, There are tricks on skateboarding or in cooking or in all of these other categories that people never even conceived of. They never thought of them. They never thought, uh, you know, that it, it was possible. And then someone makes a YouTube video of someone doing it. And then Everyone is able to do it instantly. That learning is so fast. It is so exponential in terms of its spread that you can't discount the speed with which other workers around the world can catch up. It, it's unprecedented. Same thing happened even in athletics. You know, the, the four-minute mile was inconceivable for a while, but once someone broke it, everyone was breaking it. And so, it, not me, <laughs> clearly, but, but people with actual athletic ability. That's the, the crazy thing about this age that we're in. So these are not the same times as the 80s and 90s when uh, jobs were already bleeding out. But now we're talking about these, you know, uh, smart, what, what are they called? I keep forgetting the term for it. But we're, we're talking about knowledge workers. And knowledge workers for the longest time thought that they've got something no one else can have. Well, that's not true anymore. A lot of it comes down to leverage. So another guy wrote, I was wondering if we were going to see a movement where companies start paying the cost of offices by paying their employees for use of their homes. So that's if the workers had all the leverage. But I think the leverage on balance is switching towards corporations. And here's why. Uh, So I talked about this opening up of competition. That's the first thing. The next thing is a little bit uh, uh, (laughs) mushier, but as important which is 
it weakens bonds and attachments when you're remote. It's much easier to fire an avatar. If there's a worker you've only met online and they lose their jobs, you've just lost a, a Facebook friend or you've lost a, you know, someone that, that you, you clicked on. It's, it's like a YouTube channel got uh, canceled or something. You're like, okay, well, there's other YouTube channels. So you just don't develop the depth of attachment. We're still human beings. We still need to connect. And so your bond, which was already kind of flimsy because it is an office bond. You're not, you know, making love. So, okay. Matt Lauer might be, but, but other people are not, you know, don't have those kinds of uh, close relationships in the office. So you're, you're basically now even weakening that bond, which wasn't that strong to begin with. It also makes it more difficult to build trust. Look, <laughs> if you were to commit some sort of great crime or you were going to launch some great new service or you're going to take a big business risk, you need to be able to look someone in the eye and know that you can trust them. You need to spend, you need to breathe the same air that they've breathed. I know that sounds disgusting, especially in the age of COVID, but you need to be in the room. I, I forgot what this uh, percentage was. I think it was something like 80% of communication is nonverbal. So when you're not physically present with each other, you're not building trust and you need levels of trust for levels of risk and for levels of commitment. And that has been diminished. And so that means not only are uh, the peer to peer trust is compromised, but the uh, employer to employee or company to employees uh, level of trust is much, much flimsier and harder to build. And the other thing that it does, and no, I've never heard anyone talk about this, which is the fragmenting of jurisdictions. Now that everyone is living in some other place, where do you unionize if, let's say, you wanted to unionize? How do you organize as employees? How do you start chattering about negotiating higher salaries in the in the hallway? You can't. And and legally, the frameworks are much harder, right? So do you unionize? So if, if, if you have workers scattered all over, not that there's a lot of unions for white-collar workers, but even any kind of leverage. So there's a law, for example, in New York now where you can't ask employees um, what they've earned in previous jobs or what their salary demand is. The company has to tell you what they're willing to pay. I think that's a great law. But now what if someone's living in another state? Uh, and what if the company now says, hey, we don't have to be located here anymore so we can go to a state that doesn't have that. So all these worker protections are now gone. So you don't, just like you don't have a clustering of workers, you don't have a clustering of leverage. People don't appreciate that. That's why I'm here. Um, and in many ways, under this model, the incumbents win. Here's what I mean by that. So Sam Altman, who is a startup guy, he um, he ran, uh, what's that famous um, accelerator uh, name just slipped my mind, but um, he posted a thought experiment online. It was a survey. He said, you have a startup. You hear about a new startup with smart, dedicated founders that is going to compete with you. Are you most nervous if they are, one, fully remote, two, in person three days a week, or three, fully in person. So the result of that poll was 67.3% voted fully in person, and only 19.6% fully remote. 
No one's afraid of a team that's zooming in from the Swiss Alps or some Mexican Pueblo. Your mind is not on work and it will show. It will show in the work product. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean the company can't function, but that just means no one is going to be scared of you either. You're, you don't pose as ferocious a, th- a threat because what we talked about earlier, commitment, the commitment level is not the same. In general, this model favors large incumbents because they already have defined roles. They have a defined organization that's not really trying to innovate. Big companies, you know, they have a lot of innovation meetings, but they don't have a lot of innovation. And new employees and new companies, they thrive on building new connections. They have to find customers. They have to meet with people. They have to hit the pavement. Um, young people have to, you know, network w- with, with others who might give them jobs or help them move up or mentors or whoever. And, you know, they still want to go to, you know, to these places, but the people they need to network with are gone. They're, you know, they're in the Hamptons or in their uh, uh, Connecticut homes. And so it's kind of ironic that as all these people enter the workforce needing FaceTime, all the people they need to interact with are now on FaceTime. Data backs me up on this. A lot of young people are flocking to New York and San Francisco. In fact, rents in New York are the highest they've ever, ever been. And this is all, you know, a lot of these remote workers, whatever, they're just showing up at the doorstep saying, Hey, New York, I'm here. You know, take me, take me and, uh, you know, take me, but, (laughs) but take my $5,000 a month for rent, which is the average rent now in New York. Um, they're also building these new pod houses in San Francisco. You ever saw where Kramer kept Japanese businessmen in drawers it's basically that. And um, LinkedIn, uh, there were a couple of posts uh, talking about these different surveys. 60% of white collar staff aged 21 to 30, they really want to return to the office. Returning to the office has become more important to them over the last year, which was a survey done by Sharp Corporation. And um, many believe that Working from home has hobbled their careers. And that was a uh, survey from Citrix. It was a poll that they did. So, uh, and then this other one, uh, remote work lovers by age. So if you look at the age distribution, this is from uh, University of Chicago. 20 to 29, 24% loved working from home. And... Then it kept going up until you hit the 50 to 64-year-olds, 41% of them, almost double, liked working from home. So this is very age-centric because the people have already established connections, established careers, have business contacts, have reputations. They don't need uh, that FaceTime as much, but young workers, they're hungry and <laughs> no one will feed them because certainly not at the office because they've canceled the cafeteria because everyone's working from home. Anyway, so it's kind of reminiscent of COVID in a way because the young are being asked to sacrifice for the old. Statistically, the young were not, I'm going to have to bleep COVID, I just realized because YouTube bans all this stuff. Anyway, uh, in that case, Kids had to pay a price. They couldn't show up to to school because teachers didn't feel safe. They didn't want to come in. Statistically, they were almost in no danger, even though other countries, they kept their schools open. But in the U.S., they were like, hey, you know, we're going to make a choice. And it was a pretty conscious choice where it was a transfer of benefit 
from the young to the old. And uh, work from home does that all over again in a different way. The other question is automation. So this story was uh, circulating around the internet. It was about a company called Freshly, Freshy. I thought it was Freshly, but it's two eyes. Um, they have a new virtual cashier that works from Nicaragua for three seventy-five an hour, and everyone was up in arms. They're like, "We need to raise the minimum wage. We need to increase unionization. We need to ban automation." And I'm like, "Really? You want to take progress and automation that takes?" crappy jobs. Let's face it. Cashier is not, uh, you know, an amazing uh, career path. So instead of embracing progress, you're going to say, no, we're going to calcify these crappy jobs and zombify them for all of eternity. (laughs) We're going to have cashiers forever, no matter how miserable they are, how bad they are at their jobs. And so we're going to take these obsolete jobs and make them forever. It's like we said, hey, stagecoach drivers, listen, We can't stand to see you go. I know there's cars and all this other stuff. We're going to just keep paying you and we're going to force companies to keep paying you. Same thing with uh, cobblers and TV repairmen and all this other stuff. It's, you can't stop the future. You cannot. And, and all of these things, unions, minimum wages, they're not going to help. In fact, they might ultimately hurt because yeah, you might save a few jobs in the short term, but in the long term, how many people do you want doing mindless dumb jobs, you know, this is sliding, you know, uh, milk and coffee across the scanner. It makes no sense. This is not, this is not an answer. And um, making unskilled labor in general, making it more expensive will only accelerate automation. You're just improving the business case. The biggest threat to the worker isn't so much technology or automation. It's math. And what I mean by that is an insane level of disposability. So this is from an Inc. article. An HR executive in a global multi-billion dollar company told me that when people ask to work at home and receive Silicon Valley wages elsewhere, be careful what you wish for. If I can have you in San Francisco or Iowa, I can hire someone in India. And that's someone who is dealing with this day in and day out. Don't think anyone is safe. And realistically, mathematically, we're all disposable. Companies have been getting bigger and bigger. I've I've done the stat in other episodes, but I think we're up to almost uh, 75% of our GDP is in the biggest 500 companies. The Fortune 500 is now almost 75%, might even be higher. I haven't seen an up-to-date stat. So we're all cogs in giant machines. Even CEOs are disposable. And I, I saw I saw this um, the other day, this headline. Bill Murray, who contracted COVID shortly before filming began, was replaced by Steve Carell on some uh, movie by Wes Anderson. Bill Murray is a franchise player. Bill Murray is a legend. Bill Murray was replaced. Are you as good as Bill Murray? Are you a franchise player? Even franchise players get replaced. So unless your contribution to the company represents, I don't know, 20% of of their revenues or or profits or something, 
uh, wave goodbye because uh, the disposability is coming for you. So look, that's not to say that you're going to be kicked out tomorrow, but it's just math. It's just the reality. And very few of us are Bill Murray. I am not Bill Murray. I would like to be. That is just not our reality. So a lot of people are predicting the future and uh, they're saying that five years from now, working from home will be double what it was before. So before the pandemic, it was 12.3%. And they're saying 22.9% will be working fully from home. And then we're going to go up uh, probably about 50% on people who are at least part-time from home. Uh, So that was uh, just under 9% before the pandemic. And they're saying it's going to be almost 15% in five years. Executives are mixed on this. So Zillow's CEO said that this might create a two-class system where those who come into the office are favored compared to people who don't because they're more committed, they're working harder, and so they're going to be rewarded for it. So they're going to be sort of the upper crust, the Brahmins of uh, of business. The Brahmins of business, uh, That that's... That's a politically incorrect team that uh, someone should launch for five minutes if they want uh, social media infamy. Um, And then GitLab CEO uh, called the hybrid model the worst of both worlds. In fact, a lot of companies are saying this, that, you know, this idea that you can can have both is horrible. And I've seen this firsthand because no one can coordinate when everyone is going to be available. People are booking vacations. They're working from their car on their way to their summer house. You know, so all, all of these people are, are constantly in motion and in flux and it's become impossible to coordinate. And it's actually added a layer of inefficiency. So a lot of the efficiency that was gained by not commuting was lost because people are now trying to figure out when they can actually be in a room together. And, um, you know, I think functionally things are going to normalize. Um, some jobs are, and some job functions are going to be fine working from home and people are going to self-select into those. You know, I, I think it's just going to take time because, you know, you can dictate to someone, hey, do this. But some people are just crappy at, at uh, organizing themselves and need that office structure and they need a boss, you know, coming by and telling them what to do uh, or, you know, other employees kind of looking at them to see if they're working, you know, all that stuff to to kind of if not motivate you, then to kind of scare you into being productive. So I think that will happen. And uh, there are others who are perfectly fine and self-organized and and can, you know, manage themselves and are, are perfectly efficient, can shut down the laptop at five and have been more productive than all these other losers who, who need to be observed and, and shamed into, into being productive. So it's, you know, and, and managers are going to adapt to both. And financially, there you know, there's going to be some adjustments, right? Their companies are already playing around with stuff. Like Google, for example, was adjusting people's salaries based on where they moved. And some other companies were also doing pay cuts. So this is still an era of experimentation. Things are in, in flux. And um, there are companies that have an iron fist. So uh, JP Morgan told their New York and London employees, you better be here in the office. That's very old school. That's very finance. And, you know, when you're paying people that kind of money, they come in. That's just the reality. It's, those jobs are are very hard to come by and they're very competitive. And the people who want to loaf, if working from home is perceived as loafing, then they're not going to get those gigs. Near term, I think circumstances are going to take precedence. So there was a survey from PwC that said that 
50% of companies are planning to reduce overall headcount in the coming months. And 46% of companies said that they're either dropping or reducing signing bonuses. And 44% are pulling back offers. So, you know, there's going to be another layer on this, which is in this shift of power to corporations when the economy is not as strong as it has been over the last couple of years in, in 2019, um, you're going to have a lot of forces acting on things and work from home is just one of the pieces that's in play. And um, I do expect, you know, layoffs, restructurings, especially if companies aren't doing well. Right now, consumer spending is pretty good. So I, I don't think it'll be huge. And I think there is a chance at a soft landing. But if inflation keeps up, then, you know, anything's fair game. Um, David Marcus was the former head of um, PayPal. And he was the head of messaging for Facebook for a long time. He wrote, it just hit me that a good chunk of this next generation coming into the workforce might never experience the joys of collaborating with colleagues in a vibrant workplace, sharing coffee, after work drinks, uh, okay, <laughs> sharing coffee, comma, after work drinks. Sad to imagine so many people looking at screens all day. And my response to him was, these new workers are still settling into these new places. What's happening now is kind of like, um, not just a virtualization, but a redistribution of labor. And when labor gets redistributed, we're all social creatures. We're going to start creating new bonds and new connections, and those things will lead to companies. So those coffee breaks and those drinks after work, they're coming back, and they're also going to uh, spawn potentially a whole new generation of startups because now there's just new bonds, and they're happening in different places and in different ways than they did before. And the other interesting thing, which is a little bit of a sidebar, is how the politics of all this is going to play out because you see a lot of uh, blue state people from like California and New York moving into red states like Texas and, and Florida. It'll be interesting to see if they become red state people and now they're just carrying guns everywhere and just shooting their own steaks. Uh, that'll be fun, you know, just to see all the, the former vegans barbecuing on Sundays and doing uh, one of those, uh, uh, what do they call that in the back of the in the parking lot of the sports ring. This is the kind of spaz I am. I don't even know what it's called. What do they call it when you're sitting in the, when you're all partying in the parking lot before the game or after the game? All right. I can't remember what it is. All right. But take my word for it. It exists. What the hell is it called? It's driving me nuts. Anyway. So the question is, how does this all happen? Uh, one guy wrote, a lot of remote work I see is still U.S. only. They won't hire foreign nationals because of security or insurance issues. And that's true. There are going to be some laws that prevent foreign competition from coming in. But if you look at the history of how easily those barriers fall, especially with the right uh, lobbying connections, one example that, that I think is interesting here is when we ran broadband lines to India. At first, you know, nothing happened. But once Indians got online, we started outsourcing so much customer service and then eventually development and other jobs to India because they spoke English and they were smart, educated, and now had the connectivity to compete. 
So I think that's kind of what work at home is unlocking. And there's also a little bit of the manufacturing uh, history that we had in the 80s and 90s, especially during Clinton in the 90s when we signed all those free trade agreements. Uh, That opened the floodgates to all these companies building factories overseas. And those workers weren't necessarily better. American workers were probably still better. But again, if they were performing at 60 or 70% uh, of the capacity of an American worker, but willing to work at 50%, that's an error tolerance that a lot of companies were willing to accept. And uh, to this day, that delta still exists. And in practice, I think it's going to play out a little bit like uh, the checkout counters at Target or Costco. When you go to the store, it used to be, you know, there's a clerk that would check out all of your items. But now you go in, there's this whole battery of self-checkout items. Same thing in CVS. And there's typically one person monitoring all of these registers, sometimes two, depending on how many there are. You'll see the same thing here where you're going to have uh, an American worker potentially who understands the culture, understands the, you know, the marketing, the language, the local trends, but they're going to have potentially a, a bigger and bigger army of outsourced workers on their team who are going to be contributing at a much cheaper rate. And that doesn't mean that American workers are going to be replaced or fired right away, but when they retire or they leave for another job, maybe that becomes an opportunity for companies to go, hey, why don't we broaden our scope a little bit and look at Indonesia or we look at uh, India or we look at some of these other places where you can get qualified remote workers. There's another part to this that's important to talk about, and that's the meaning of work. And Malcolm Gladwell, the author, he was quoted recently as saying, It's very hard to feel necessary when you're physically disconnected. And, um, you know, as, as we face the battle that all organizations are facing now and getting people back into the office, that this, people, it's really hard to explain this core psychological truth, which is we want you to have a feeling of belonging and to feel necessary. We, and we want a, you to join our team and if you're not here, it's really hard to do that. It's not in your best interest to work at home. I know it's a hassle to come to the <laughs> office. But like, you know, if you work, if you're just sitting in your pajamas in your bedroom, is that the work life you want to live, right? Don't you want to feel part of something? So he's making an argument for coming back to the office and for the human connection and the meaning that people get out of work. So I understand where he's coming from, but there's a few places I differ. First, I think in general, a lot of office type work, which is the kind of work that's work from home, is very esoteric to begin with. You're not physically building something. You're making some slides, organizing some meetings, having some conversations, and then stuff happens somewhere. Maybe you're coding, whatever it is. This isn't exactly what dreams are made of. You know, this isn't exactly uh, the most meaningful of work. So yes, in the office, uh, you can build some relationships and that creates sort of a, you know, a, a, an environment that's much more welcoming, but the work itself doesn't really change. So, so that's one place I differ. The other is philosophically, 
Malcolm Gladwell is a middle-aged man with no kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. He can live whatever lifestyle he wants. But he has invested everything in his work. Most of the meaning in his life has been derived from his work and his uh, output. That describes a very small fraction of people. I would say maybe 20% of workers altogether. And even then, a lot of them are, are much younger workers who also don't have families. But then if you start moving into people who uh, have families and have more complicated lives, it probably drops to 5%, maybe even less, that derive their meaning from their job. That's not to say it's unimportant, but it's not the core. But because he has so much more at stake if work becomes less meaningful than other people who have eggs in more baskets and arguably more meaningful baskets because looking at your kid versus looking at the book you wrote, I would say one has a much higher chance of pooping (laughs) first and foremost, but it depends on the kind of person who will look at the inanimate object and say, yes, this is far more satisfying. I would say the majority would look at the thing that's that's running around and, you know, uh, scraping up the carpet with their skateboard uh, as the more fulfilling option. And maybe not the most uh, the more fun option, but certainly unrelated to work other than work helps you support that uh, family. And Jason Calacanis also responded to this and I think he added a finer point uh, to this as well. He wrote for most Work is a paycheck to take care of themselves. For a lucky few, it's a mission or an obsession. Founders should be at peace with this. Founders, you can have unique pods of contributors. Your management team should live for the mission and get serious equity. Your next group of contributors can be enthusiastic or simply competent. They get a smaller fraction of equity. In the past, I'd call that group toilers. But then there's this other group he wrote about. Finally, we have freelancers and full-time contractors. Uh, I would call those moonlighters if I were rewriting my old nine corporate personality types. Jason says, you do not need to care about anything other than their output. And they only need to care about their compensation. If they love their mission, great. But Best for both sides to focus on the trade of value, i.e. pay and quality of work. And this is a key point. The future will likely be small teams in offices managing large groups of freelancers who are judged on output and who are replaced by cheaper, better, or faster solutions ruthlessly. Let's focus on that word ruthlessly. These are the people that are least attached to the company, as I mentioned earlier, and the company is least attached to them just by nature of of how they work with them. They're freelancers. Yeah, they can prioritize their personal life over work, but work will also prioritize better technologies and better options ruthlessly over whatever it is that they contribute or or any kind of loyalty to them because there is nothing to that relationship. It's a very weak bond. And even with that next tier of toilers, the people who have some equity but also kind of aren't committed to the mission and live it and breathe it. So this is really the future. And Jason added one more thing. And those freelancers will fire customers ruthlessly and demand increasing comp when they can. 
And the question is, will they even have the leverage? Will that loose aggregate of workers, will they have any leverage in this model? How many options do they have? Really depends. So that's uncertain at this point. But this is the Pandora's box we've opened. And no one is coming to save you. We might be going from work at home to at home to no home. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, by the time they wake up and by the time they draft some legislation that they're going to argue with Republicans about, it's going to be too late. Mitch McConnell won't even know you exist. He won't care. That guy's got uh, contributors to please. And Nancy Pelosi will pretend to care. You know how when you pretend to reach for the elevator button when someone's running for the elevator and you're going to press door open, but sometimes you press door close or you don't press anything at all. That's going to be Nancy Pelosi. So none of these people are coming to help you unless Nancy Pelosi can make a killing off the stock of your company and you give her some inside tips. So these are unstoppable forces and we shouldn't live a life pretending that they will save anybody. I don't think they will. And there are many questions. So much of this is still in flux. One big question I have is because we have an aging population, I think that will uh, shrink the workforce and will allow workers to continue to have some leverage or more leverage than they would if our birth rates were higher. The question then is, will automation outpace uh, the aging? So it's kind of a race. And then uh, UBI and redistribution, I think on some level that will be necessary because knowledge work isn't the only kind of work that will suffer. The people who had to show up to work and who had to come in, uh, they don't have benefits either. Uh, They're looking for at least healthcare and things like that or, or retirement security in the future. So I think some sort of redistribution is inevitable. How it plays out, a lot of it will depend on political power. I know I just said there are no saviors, but uh, there is a tax system and they will tax. The question is, will any of that trickle down to the people that are going to be net losers in this scenario? And so what's my advice here? Uh, I'll tell you what it isn't. And there was a time where I would have agreed with this. This is uh, something Adam Grant wrote. Uh, He's a psychology writer, author. He wrote, hey, leaders, if people aren't coming to the office, look in the mirror. They're not avoiding work. They're avoiding toxic cultures, micromanagers, constant interruptions, and countless hours wasted commuting. If you want people to show up more often, make it worth the trip. Yes and no. I think that works on the margins and that works for younger employees. Yes, I think toxic work cultures are bad regardless of whether you're working from home or or in the office, probably a little bit worse in the office. But um, this whole idea, if you build it, they will come. You have to put caveats on all the words. It being a theme park, they being office workers, and come uh, back to the office or to Thunder Mountain because now you've built a roller coaster uh, through the lobby because that's the only way you're going to have employees want to come back. Environmental stuff uh, is probably more important to workers that are on the fence. People want very different things. I remember... When I was uh, just starting out in these corporations, 
uh, my peers wanted to organize all of these events, all of this after work stuff, all this networking. And the older workers wanted nothing to do with it. They were like, uh, we want to go home. They didn't say it, but you could tell by how uh, thinly attended those events were that they had other things going on. And that really is a challenge here because you do have a contingent of people that are kind of settled and the others are hungry. So who do you optimize your organization for? And I don't know that there's a fair treatment here for the people who want to work from home because at the end of the day, if people are going to be working later hours and going to be working harder and they're going to move to where the company is and they're going to, you know, go the extra mile. Yeah, they probably should be rewarded differentially. This life stage component will play out and some might perceive it as ageism and it may be in some cases. It's hard not to be discriminatory when one worker is like, eh, I'm going to dial in from Zoom and the other one's in the office at uh, 7.30. Just not the same worker. It, it, and they don't deserve the same pay. They des- deserve dignity and th- they deserve opportunity. But at the end of the day, the, the one who uh, works harder should get promoted and should get higher pay. So my real suggestion to you is march into the office and say, This was a horrible mistake. We were just kidding. We love commuting to the office. I want nothing more than to spend my morning in the car, in traffic, coming in. Not only will I come in, I will bring brownies. Not just any kind of brownies, CBD brownies for the entire office. And I will be there at 7.30 each morning. And you know what? After every single conference, I'm going to vacuum the conference room. In fact, I'm going to plant tomatoes. I'm going to find a way to farm inside of the conference room. I'm going to create wonderful jungle-like experiences inside the office. That's how much I love and care about the office. I say say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but realistically, uh, yeah, if you want more job security, you will come in and say, hey, we are losing millions, if not billions of dollars as a corporation because we can't collaborate in person, because we can't innovate, we can't brainstorm. We bought all these post-it pads and we can't use any of them because we're at home. We're at home and we need to look each other in the eye and say, I see you, I acknowledge you, I connect with you. I see you, I feel you, although not really because I don't want to trip to HR, not again. Yeah, tell them you want to come back. That will increase your job security. Or maybe you don't care. Maybe you've made enough. Maybe you're confident enough in your abilities, and some people are. And maybe work at home is going to work out great for you. Uh, But there will be a time when work at home We'll plug into our biology and then all bets are off. All my advice, all these ideas are all trash because once the virtual experience becomes multi-sensory at one hundredth of the price, all bets are off. Maybe it's not coming in the very near future, but it will be there. And the only thing I could say is for that future, do not hire Jeffrey Tubin. This really devolved nicely, didn't it? As it should, as work at home will, it will devolve to some extent. You cannot maintain uh, leverage and strong bonds in a remote environment very easily. 
And there's this sort of micro macro perspective I want to talk about real quick. Just because you don't matter mathematically to the organization doesn't mean you don't matter. Doesn't mean the work can't be meaningful. You are meaningful to your immediate boss. That is what you need to optimize for. What gets that person that I report to ahead uh, or gets them to recommend me for that next role. But on a macro level, because mathematically we don't matter, because now the world is our oyster and our stuff is their oyster. Because of that, do not allow corporations to take the reins of your career. So that is something we all have to manage much, much more aggressively now because it's not as easy to network. It's not as easy to make new connections. It's not as easy to find new things unless you're doing it online and digital flattens everybody out. So now connections are more important than ever and making them and making meaningful ones is more important than ever. That is where everyone should focus. That's where I'm putting my focus That'll be the difference between people who thrive in this new world and ones that fail. And know thyself. Know the kind of person you are. If you're the kind of person that needs to come in and is motivated, or like me, like a like a vampire. I am a an energy vampire. I rely on interacting with other people to create new ideas, to, to interact, to collaborate, to make something better than what I could do on my own. Then I should be in, a, in an office or I should be collaborating somehow in person with people. Whereas others are perfectly fine, perfectly organized at doing things themselves and they also might have the kind of job where that's beneficial, where a little bit of quiet for writing or coding is way better for them. And for companies, on the surface, there are a lot of short-term benefits. But disposability works both ways. Weak bonds work both ways. Just like uh, you're not that attached to these remote employees, they're not that attached to you. And motivating them in virtual space is much harder than motivating them in uh, the real world. I think the key is to listen and to actually care rather than pretending to care, which some organizations do, but I think more and more are actually uh, listening. And the other thing is breaking things down to where they're meaningful, where they actually matter. Smaller teams, smaller roles, things that connect directly to the marketplace rather than all of this administrative bloat. So the less administration and the more people touch the product, the customer, uh, you know, and, and actually do work that they can see output from, that is what will create meaning and what, what will make employees loyal. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you did, please share with others and support the show on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture. I'm Steve Factor. See you next week on the McFuture. And I saw this headline the other day. Buzz Aldrin is auctioning off the NASA jacket he wore to the moon and other items from his time in space. And I'm like, this thief, that's government property. That's our stuff. The right stuff. He's been stealing it the whole time. These are our national treasures. And you thought taking some binder clips from the office supply closet was bad because of this kleptomaniac, one of the greatest kleptomaniacs in the history of mankind, all future space missions will now work from home. As if all these different institutions didn't need more reasons to 
keep us at home. Now they're all just going to be dialing in. They're going to f- send a few chip- chimps out there or some AI robot or what's that uh, Saudi Arabian robot? She'll be out there in space. And everyone else is going to be dialing in. So Buzz Aldrin, you are the tipping point for our society working from home pointlessly forever. 